Almost all of the major downturns in the United States, economic downturns since we've had a central bank, have been caused by the central bank. Central banking and fiat currency, that is money not backed by a hard commodity like gold, is among one of the biggest policy experiments of the past century, placing the entire U.S. money supply under the management of the federal government. Today, we are witnessing yet another failure of the centrally planned system as fiat regimes around the world continue to implement risky monetary ideas while inflation and in some countries a currency crisis rages. This begs the question of whether there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and if so, if private alternatives like cryptocurrency provide an answer. And what would that look like? To help me answer these questions, I'm joined by Tom Hogan, Tom is a senior research faculty here at the American Institute for Economic Research and previously served as a chief economist on the U.S. Senate Banking Committee. He's written extensively on the Federal Reserve and alternative monetary standards in cryptocurrency. So I want to talk to you about sort of alternatives to central banking. And I think it's fair to say that when it came to this whole experiment with fiat currencies and centrally managed money, I think around the world, we're already seeing those effects. We're seeing inflation in countries like the US and the EU. And if you go to like less less uh, well-managed monetary regimes, like for example, Laos, you see inflation numbers up like 40% or something like that. Yeah. It just seems like a total disaster. So I want to ask you, um, what do you think are some big highlights that are just going on right now, central banking-wise? Well, we're kind of in an, a period of experimentation. Um, we're doing some mm-hmm. things the central bank, banks are that they haven't ever done before. And so they're not quite sure what to expect from some of the results. And that's kind of been happening since the 2008 financial crisis. You know, at that time, the uh, Federal Reserve, that's the central bank of the United States, they experimented with some policies that they had never done before. And in fact, changed their operating system so fundamentally that we literally had to rewrite the textbooks. Mm. We had to change the way that we had always taught monetary policy. And in fact, some people are still teaching it the old way. Mm. Um, and what and, is the old way, by the way? And uh, yeah, and so now we've introduced even more stuff. So, so the big change that happened at that time is that the way central banks have traditionally operated, it, especially the Federal Reserve in the United States. So the, the Fed is the central bank of the United States and they manage the money supply um, mostly by buying and selling bonds. And so they, they try to affect interest rates in the economy because interest rates affect uh, how much people are borrowing and lending, how much uh, banks want to lend, and how much people want to borrow from the banks. When interest rates are high, people don't want to borrow money because it's expensive. And when interest rates are low, they want to borrow a lot to buy a house or expand their business, hire new workers. And so the economy you know grows more or less um, based on the level of interest rates. And so traditionally what the Federal Reserve has done in the United States is they have targeted interest rates so that when they push interest rates up, money grows a little bit slower and the economy grows a little bit slower. And when they push interest rates down, uh, it grows a little more quickly. So if they think a recession's coming, they try to push down interest rates. And if they think maybe the economy is running too hot, then they try to raise them to, to slow the growth. Um, so traditionally, they had done that by buying and selling bonds. So they didn't actually set the interest rate. Sometimes people would say the Fed sets the interest rate. And that wasn't technically true. They would try to influence it by buying and selling bonds, um, putting money into the economy or taking it out. And so that was traditionally how they had done it is they, they didn't actually interfere, or sorry, they didn't actually set the interest rate in the market, but they tried to influence it. Mm-hmm. 
That changed in 2008 because what they started doing was they started paying banks uh, interest on the reserves that banks held at the Fed. So, you know, the way that you have a, a bank account, you put your money in the bank. The bank then has an account at the central bank, hmm. the Fed. And so they put some of that money on reserve at the Fed. And so the Fed started paying banks interest on that money, which they had never done before, which then meant that the Fed was actually setting the interest rate that banks get, and then banks were therefore passing that on to mm. their customers and passing it on to the rest of the financial system. Mm. And so for the first time, the Fed was actually setting the interest rate in the economy rather than just trying to influence it. Mm. Um, the other big thing that they did at that time was they started doing what they call quantitative easing was that, that was instead of putting money into the economy a little bit at the time, they started putting tons and tons in. And so the, the scale of the federal reserve, like the whole federal reserve was the, the whole money supply was less than a trillion dollars at that time. And yet they did multiple rounds of mm. putting trillions of dollars at a time into the economy. And it was so big that if they had been doing it in the traditional way, it would have completely blown up the system and had tons of uh, inflation. And that's what a lot of people expected initially. Mm -hmm. But because they also introduced this uh, idea of paying banks to hold, hold the money, they put money into the banking system and then the banks didn't put that money out into the economy. They just turned around and put it back at the Fed. Mm. And so these two changes really completely changed the way that the Fed was was doing its monetary policy because they started doing this big monetary injection that no longer had big effect mm -hmm. because they were paying banks interest and then the banks didn't want to lend out that money. They just wanted to hold it. Mm -hmm. And so that was like a fundamental change that completely changed the way that we do monetary policy. Mm. And from my understanding, a lot of that was done to prop up the stock market during the COVID area when much of the economy is locked down. Was was that sort of part of the mentality? Well, so, the, so the change that I'm talking about, so this fundamental change happened in 2008. But then you're right. So they switched back. Uh, they changed again. Um, this time what they did was they started doing a bunch of QE and putting mm -hmm. money into the economy without paying higher interest rates. Mm. And so this time, the money really did flow into the system and did cause mm. a bunch of inflation. Um, I wouldn't say that was necessarily to prop up the stock market, but I I would say they tried to push the economy in a way they really hadn't been doing before. Mm. Uh, previously, they were really trying to just from the 80s until the mid-2000s, they were just trying to support economic activity and really only provide as much money as the economy needed to grow. Mm -hmm. And they changed that to try to really push the economy and try to make it grow faster than it really would have organically. Mm -hmm. And so that was really a change that went back to something they used to do in, say, the 1960s and 70s when we also had a lot of inflation. Mm. And so the Fed switched back to that strategy, and lo and behold, we get a lot of inflation. Mm, oh. Well, that... Yeah, that, that says a lot. I'm now, now it all starts to make sense of why everything is happening the way it happened. Because well, what was that doctrinal shift from the 60s? And then I'm assuming you're, you're speaking about monetarism or Milton Friedman. Yeah, yeah, that's and, right. And then we kind of went back to it now that we had another crisis. Right. So in, in the post-World War II period, um, the Federal Reserve uh, increasingly started to manage the, the money supply in the economy to try to... Um, uh, try to manage the boom and bust cycle that when the economy was going to go down, they were going to put money into the economy to get it going again. Um, 
but they started to push it too much and they started to try to get uh, unemployment rate down and down and down. And so they were putting so much money into the economy that started to cause inflation. Um, Part of that was a little bit political. There's some Mm -hmm. evidence that uh, say the Nixon administration um, was, was trying to use the central bank to make the economy look good so that Nixon would get reelected. And that had, that had happened a little bit previously in the 1960s as well. Um, But the idea was that the fed thought that they could control the economy and try to push it to keep uh, uh, the unemployment rate down, but it ended up not doing that. It ended up causing inflation to rise and then unemployment to rise as well. And so Mm. it really backfired. Um, And you're right that 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 effect was basically predicted by Milton Friedman and some other people that were monetarists that were saying, money is what's causing inflation here. The fact that the Fed is, is increasing the money supply so much that's the thing that's driving up prices. And a lot of people at the Fed at the time thought, no, 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 no. We've figured out inflation and that's not what's causing it. It's a bunch of other factors and, mm. and they were all wrong. Mm. And so Milton Friedman predicted in the 1960s, look, if you keep doing this, we're going to have really high inflation. And he proved to be right. And that's why he won the Nobel Prize <laughs> in, in mm. the 1970s. Um, and so that, that really changed a lot of economists' minds. By the late mm. 70s and the early 1980s, we realized that money was what caused that, all that inflation. And so um, the Fed went moved to a more passive policy to not cause inflation, to not try to drive the economy, but rather to just support it enough to allow the economy to grow. Mm. So if Milton Friedman was so correct and he won this Nobel Prize and changed everything that we thought about monetary policy, how do we end up sliding back after? Um, in the recent years. Yeah, so the the changes that happened in 2008, I think were really unintentional in the way that they affected the money supply. Um, The Fed was trying to, in 2008, bail out the banking system because banks were holding a lot of bad uh, mortgage-related debt, mortgage-backed securities uh, that they didn't really understand the risks of. And to be honest, part of that was caused by the Fed, that the Fed had all these regulations that were encouraging banks to buy more mortgage-backed mm. securities. Uh, and so then when the mortgage-backed securities fail, the banking system starts to fail. And the, the Federal Reserve thought, well, we can fix this problem by buying up all these mortgage-backed securities off of the banks. We'll take away their bad debt and we'll give them a bunch of cash mm-hmm. that is safe. And we'll pay them to hold that cash. Hmm. So this is where the paying interest on reserves comes in. We'll pay them to hold that cash so that they hold these safe assets instead of risky ones. Um, and so that was partly a regulatory policy, but also partly because um, they knew they were injecting a bunch of money into the economy and they didn't want it to blow up the economy and cause a bunch of inflation. And so paying banks to hold that money rather than to lend it out um, was something to compensate for this other policy. So they have these couple of different policies. Um, but you know, two wrongs don't make a right. Mm-hmm. Those policies did prevent inflation, but they caused low growth in the economy and low inflation for you know a decade after that. Um, and so the more complicated the monetary policy got, the harder it was to understand what was going on and what were the effects of their monetary policy. And so some of the people at the Fed in the in the post-2008 period, they were saying, well, look, monetarism's wrong because we injected all this money and it didn't have a big effect. Mm. Um, but they didn't fully understand that the paying the banks to hold on to that money mm-hmm. had caused that to not get the money into the economy, to not cause inflation. And so those two policies were offsetting each other. 
And so because they adopted all these different policies at the same time, they couldn't really tell what was happening. And it caused some of the people to revert and say, oh, it turns out monetarism is not what we thought it was. Mm. And then now we're seeing the opposite of that. that They're injecting money again. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's causing all this inflation. It's like, oh, no, actually, it was monetarist all the the time. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to just – it seems like if the Fed is managed well, then sure, it's fine. But it's just the fact that it's there. Well, it just leaves the door open for some mistake to happen, someone to think, oh, maybe we can try this. And that obviously led to the snowball effect that we mm-hmm. saw just now. So do you think that, um, I heard in Europe they're using, they're experimenting with um, like negative interest rates and then the US, we are, I don't know where exactly we're going to go because it seems like we learned our lesson, but at the same time, like, did we really, mm-hmm. right? So what do you think is the... Like, is there international conversation on fiat currencies at the moment? Like, is there like a consensus that something has to be done? Yeah, so so there is a lot of dispute right now. I mean, obviously, all the central banks think that central banking is the right thing. Mm-hmm. And they're going to do a great job. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think we were we were fooled by the complacency of the 1980s and 90s and early 2000s that because we had learned these lessons from the 1960s and 70s that we we understood that. Mon- uh, monetary policy causes inflation, and the f- the Fed did a good job in the 80s and 90s of keeping inflation low and allowing the economy to to grow and boom without having a lot of inflation. Mm-hmm. And so people thought, well, we've solved this problem of central banking. We figured it out. Um, and you know, even in even into the like after 2008, prior to COVID, people were still saying like, oh well. Inflation now is too low, and we've we've got to stimulate the economy more, or something like that. And even just you know, just a few years ago, at that time, we wouldn't even be having this conversation about central banks because mm-hmm. people thought so highly of central banks; they thought they were doing such a great job. Mm. Um, and they would have said, "No, no, no, we figured it out. We weren't. We aren't going to have these big mistakes like the 1970s anymore. We're not going to have the Great Depression, which you know the mm-hmm. Fed is largely credited with having caused. Mm. No, 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 we figured that stuff out." Um, and so people had a lot of confidence in central banks. And now suddenly, just a few years later, central banks around the world are causing a bunch of inflation again. I mean, mm. not just not just in small countries, but in the, the biggest country, you know, the United States and in Europe, the European Central Bank um, are causing problems. And so now we're back to the situation of the 1970s where we're thinking, look, we just can't trust these central banks. Mm. I mean, they're saying we can trust them and the people that are involved with the central banks think we can trust them. Mm. Um, but I think average Americans are paying the cost for all this high inflation mm. you know, it's destroying their earnings and their purchasing power. And so it's eroding the value of their money and, and people are upset about that. And mm. we now realize like, no, 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 the central banks hadn't figured it out. Having the government run the money supply is still a bad idea, mm. you know, at least potentially. Right. And mm. so, um, so yeah, I think we're, we're now having a much more serious discussion about the proper role of central banks and the proper role of government in managing the money supply. Mm. And I think that's a great segue to the next question is, what is the proper role? Because you've written uh, multiple times in many uh, large outlets about mission drift at the Fed. And climate change is one of those huge topics. We've had multiple Biden nominees who've explicitly, shamelessly said that they're going to use monetary policy to, uh, you know, uh, forward green energy goals. Uh, Lisa Cook, one of the nominees, talked about very shamelessly about uh, helping underrepresented communities. So I guess what 
take us into the mind of a central banker. Like what are exactly, like what is that sort of mentality that leads to that mission drift? Why exactly are they taking what they've learned in school, you know, all these rigorous concepts and then thinking, okay, and then we can try all these other things too. Right. So we're, you know, we're seeing right now that the inflation uh, is partly from the Fed just ignoring their main mission of trying to be a responsible central bank and they should be just trying to support economic activity rather than trying to push the economy, rather than trying to manipulate the economy or use the central bank for some kind of political goals or or other purposes. You know, if we look to um, some other countries, central banks are used for the purpose of the dictator or the purpose of the Congress or whatever to try to meet their ends. Um, In the United States, the Federal Reserve is mostly independent as a central bank. Mm -hmm. But in other countries, you know, the dictator can just call up the central bank and be like, Mm. hey, print over, print up a million dollars and send Mm. it over. I want to buy some tanks or I have some, (laughs) you know, thing that I want to do. I want to publish my uh, Mm. political enemies or whatever. Um, And they can do that. And that obviously leads to terrible outcomes in the economy and terrible Mm. outcomes for the citizens of those countries. In the United States, we're mostly lucky to have a a mostly independent central bank um, that has has focused on trying to do what's best for the economy and trying to do what's best for average Americans. Not always, um, but like we were saying about the the post-COVID period, when they stray from that goal, that's when they start to cause problems. Mm-hmm. And so, first of all, they should be, you know, doing a good job with responsible monetary policy. But second, they should be focused only on monetary policy and not these other political goals. So, you know, like you mentioned, there's a lot of different things that people are pushing the Fed to try to do. One is that some people are pushing the Fed to be like one of these third world countries where the central mm-hmm. government can just call up and be like, print up a trillion dollars and send it over, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, MMT, modern monetary theory, like that's the idea mm-hmm. is that the the central bank should just give the, the federal government money to do whatever the federal government wants. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually can't be done in the United States the way the government is currently structured. Mm-hmm. So all these people that are saying, we're doing MMT in the United States, like, no, 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 no. That's actually completely impossible mm-hmm. the way that the government is set up right now. But some people want it to be possible. Mm-hmm. Again, when it's been done in other countries, it's led to terrible, terrible <laughs> consequences. And so those outcomes are things that we do not want. But there are definitely some people in the country that want the Fed to be beholden to the federal government and have to just do whatever the president or Congress says. I mean, they have to do ultimately whatever Congress says, um, but only if Congress like actually rewrites the Federal Reserve Act. Mm-hmm. They don't budget money coming from the Fed every every cycle. Um but there are other things, you know, even more specifically, we could say, okay, well, even if the Fed is just in charge of monetary policy, you know, what should their specific goals be? Um, some people want the Fed to try to address inequality. That's very difficult for the central bank to do, maybe impossible for the central bank to do. So for decades, actually, people have been pressuring the Fed to try to target inequality. Um, income inequality, but especially in employment. Hmm. So when we look at unemployment rates, the unemployment rates for minorities tend to be higher than those for whites. Um, black and Hispanic uh, minor uh, unemployment rates are higher than the average, and so people have been pressuring the Fed. You know, what are you going to do about this? Can you can you what can you do to get uh, minority unemployment rates down hmm. to the the level of whites? And their answer has always been. 
nothing. There's actually nothing we can do about that because mm. the central bank has only one tool, the money supply. Mm. And the money supply is something that affects the entire economy at once. And it's impossible for us to just pick out certain segments of the economy and try to affect those people and not everyone else. Mm. And so central bankers, uh, Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen, and even current Fed Chair Jerome Powell have always said, um, look, monetary policy is just not a good tool for trying to affect income inequality mm. um, or or employment inequality, and and also that's not the Fed's job. You know, mm. it's not part of their current mission. Um, their mandate is to have low unemployment and stable prices, low unemployment across the board, not for some specific set. And so they've always said, look, if Congress wants to do that, they need to pass a law. They need to do it through the Treasury or some other way. It's not our job. And even if it, we wanted to do it, we can't because we have only this broad brush of, of monetary policy. Um, and yet, despite having said for decades, like, we can't do that, mm -hmm. it's impossible, it's not our job, uh, in 2020, the Fed decided to do it anyway. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so they changed their policy and they said, okay, we're actually now going to start targeting uh, inequality. And the way that they did it was that they redefined the way they interpret their mandates. Mm. So they have this mandate for low uh, unemployment or maximum employment. And what they did was they said, we're going to make this a more inclusive goal. We're going to look at the difference between my minority unemployment rates and the average. And we're going to try to push down that difference. Mm. And what they saw was when we're in a recession, that difference is big. And mm -hmm. when the economy is growing at a very high rate, that difference is small. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in the decade before COVID, uh, minority unemployment rates had, had – the gap had been reduced greatly because all the unemployment rates were coming down. Mm -hmm. But that happened over, over a whole decade. And what the Fed tried to do was they tried to squeeze a whole decades of, gro of growth mm -hmm. into like one or two years. Mm -hmm. And so they just tried to push the economy and push it. And, and Powell kept saying, we're going to keep going until we hit maximum – uh, maximum employment, which we define as being this inclusive broad-based mm. goal, right? So we're going to keep going until we hit maximum. And even when in inflation started to come up, he said, we're going to keep going until we hit maximum. And even after th they had said, okay, we actually realize now that the Fed is causing some of this, they had initially said, this high inflation has nothing to do with the Fed. It's all transitory. It's going to be mm -hmm. short-term. It's not a monetary problem. Eventually, after about six months, Powell said, we're going to retire the word transitory. Hmm. That just doesn't describe what's happening. Monetary policy is clearly playing a role. But he still said, but we're still going to keep pushing the economy until mm. we get met to maximum unemployment, right? And so they tried to address this problem by just pushing the economy as hard as they could, and it ended up causing a lot of inflation. And so, you know, I think this is one example of um, why they should be sticking to their regular mandate and just trying to be supporting the economy and supporting economic growth so that that gap does come down. I mean, not, that's not the only reason, but that's a good, you know, effect of trying to support economic activity rather than trying to push it. Because if you push it, you end up with inflation and bad outcomes like we're seeing today. Hmm. So what exactly what do you think pushed uh, people like Jerome Powell to maybe look at the language differently to have that tweak that allows for that mission creep? Because I don't know much about Jerome Powell, but he seems like a pretty serious guy, wants to make the Fed stick to its mandate. Is there like something going on in the Board of Governors, political pressure? Like how yeah. exactly does the Fed start doing that mission creep? So the, the Fed has been 
politically pressured to do this for decades, and they're finally giving in, I suppose, maybe as part of the whole woke movement that's mm. affecting all of our government right now. Um, but it's always been the case that people have been pushing the Fed to try to address these issues that they're not supposed to be doing. Um, and in fact, when I was chief economist at Senate Banking, uh, there was a, a time when Janet Yellen came to testify before the committee, and there was a sort of staged event where a lot of the people on the committee had coordinated to ask her, mm. what are you doing to get minority unemployment rates down? And I, like, I, I was, you know, I was in the room when that happened. Like I was mm. sitting right behind Senator Shelby, who was the chairman of the committee. And so I remember Janet Yellen saying, you know, the first couple of times she was asked, she said, look, we're, we think that's a really important problem. Uh, I'm, we're doing all the things that we can to address it and blah, blah, blah. And after about the third time, she finally said, Look, that's just not something that monetary policy can solve. Mm. You know, she she said we like the same things I had said before. You know, the best we can do is we can try to encourage growth in the economy. We can try to get uh, unemployment down for everyone, and that's going to benefit minorities. But this is a structural problem that monetary policy just can't fix. Mm. Um, and so, you know, even though she, she was being pressured to do that, and of course now Janet Yellen is. Secretary of the Treasury, where she is actually implementing a bunch of mm -hmm. policies that are about inequality. Mm -hmm. But when she was at the Fed, she was honest to say, look, that's just not something that we can do. We just don't have the power to do that. Um, Jerome Powell, too, you know, early on said, this is not something we can do, but then eventually caved. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of been his story is that um, early on, Jerome Powell was thought to be very independent. Trump had appointed him, but then ended up criticizing him, and, mm -hmm. and, and Powell didn't give in to the criticism, and he didn't back off, and he didn't respond to Trump, and was seen as like, wow, that guy's really independent. But the thing was, he was independent from the executive, but he was very sensitive to what was happening in Congress. Mm. He was paying a lot of attention to what the senators and representatives were saying, going in and meeting with them all the time. And at first, as someone who had worked at the Senate, I thought, like, great, the Fed is finally listening to what mm -hmm. Congress has to say. Um, but what it meant was that when political pressure came from Congress, that Jerome Powell reacted more. Mm. And that, that was both in terms of the monetary policy, in terms of climate things, in terms of the bailouts that they did in the, um, in the COVID crisis. Mm -hmm. So across the board, he seems to be capitulating to Congress a lot more than previous Fed chairs have. Mm. So it seems like doesn't matter who you have, how great that person is, the political pressure is always so great. And even if that one person survives, you don't know what the next person is going to be like. Um, so I guess that yeah. brings me to another question, which is I think around the world there is this realization that this fiat central banking regime isn't going so well, inflation is getting really high, these experiments aren't going too well. And so there is a paper, big paper written by, I think it was Zoltan Posar at Credit Suisse, talking about something called Bretton Woods III, um, basically trying to shift from fiat standards to a commodity standard. And I know a lot of your work uh, has been on the previous gold standard. So I was wondering what your thoughts on that were. Uh, do you see a potential for a commodity standard and how would that even work? Right. So, so there are uh, several different types of gold standards. Um, I guess we can we can think of them sort of in two basic categories. One is a purely uh, privatized, decentralized system where 
historically what has happened is that miners mine up the gold. And so this is a whole market where you have lots of different people mining in different countries with different techniques and different types of companies. Um, and then you have banks that actually hold the gold in the, in the vaults and then they issue paper dollar bills that people can spend. And so people can go into a store and they can pay with either a little teeny piece of gold mm. or they can pay with a dollar bill that's issued by a bank and then you know, the person receiving that dollar bill can go to the bank and get the gold if they want it. They might want to just carry around the paper dollar bill, but that's decentralized and private in terms of both the, the gold production and the banking system, right? Um, another thing that you can do is that you can have a central bank and then you can have the central bank hold the gold and then redeem it for gold if somebody wants to um, redeem those, you know, US dollars or whatever country's currency. Um, and so we've had these two different systems. In the United States, we had the purely decentralized system up until the founding of the Fed in 1913. And then we had a central bank managed system domestically until 1933. We went off the gold standard domestically in 33, but we kept an international gold exchange system until 1971 with Bretton Woods. Mm -hmm. And so we were still on this international exchange system. And I think that's the type that... Um, that he has in mind when he says Bretton Woods 3 is that you would have central banks that are going to hold this gold and internationally you can redeem that, you know, U.S. dollars that might be redeemed for gold. Or he's more specifically talking about what if Russia and China create their own gold standard? They could issue, uh, I, don't, I, I don't know if it would be Chinese yuan or, or some other name, mm -hmm. you know, that you would take and then you would be able to redeem that for gold. Hmm. Um, and so that's something that if that happened, it might be a might be a system that would challenge the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar right now is is very dominant in international trade, and compared to most other central banks around the world, has been relatively stable. Even though we complain about it, mm -hmm. it's better than a lot of places. Um, and so it's possible that a more stable currency might steal market share internationally away from the U.S. dollar, um, and that Russia and China might use that to their advantage. I actually don't find that very plausible mm. for a couple of reasons. One is that it, the gold standard relies on trust that your dollars or whatever currency it is will be able to be redeemed for gold. It relies on very strong property rights. Mm -hmm. China and Russia do not have mm. very strong property <laughs> rights, right? Mm -hmm. So it seems, you know, if we're going to trust them, is any, anyone really going to trust Russia and China mm -hmm. to be the ones that are going to redeem that property? I mean, one of the biggest problems for American companies right now wanting to invest in China is what if I can't get my money out, right? Mm -hmm. What if they Im implement capital controls or some other thing that makes it impossible for get to get my money back? those people are not going to believe that if they give their money to China that it's going to be redeemable for gold, right? Mm. And so I, I just find that highly implausible that a system like that would um, would really work if it's managed by Russia and China. Mm -hmm. Now, if it were managed, if the United States were going to go back to an international gold standard, I find that to be a much more plausible scenario in terms of the success of the currency. I don't think we're likely to do that. Um, but if the United States or another major country or some other organization were, were willing to create a gold standard, there certainly is a market for stable currency. There are a lot of um, people from other countries that you use the U.S. dollar as a vehicle currency because mm -hmm. of its stability. That is like two people that are trading in countries that don't use U.S. dollars, they'll go through the U.S. dollar mm -hmm. 
um, in a, as a third party for transactions. So that's a vehicle currency. And actually, the Swiss franc, which is even more stable than the U.S. dollar, is widely, widely used as a vehicle currency as well. Again, mm-hmm. not the level of dominance that the U.S. dollar has, but there's a lot of demand for that kind of currency. I just don't believe that it would work with Russia or China. Mm. And then what is the mentality for possibly thinking about that commodity standard? Um, does it tie the, hand, the government's hands in a certain way? Does And if we did implement that, would that complicate the way we run our government? Since I know that you, you talked about how they helped the central bank, I need a billion dollars, right? And I'm assuming in the US it happens to a more nuanced extent, it's not ex- that explicit, but I'm assuming a lot of the government functions, whether it's funding the military or what have you, are based off of the Fed's ability to provide that liquidity on demand. So do you think that if that even happened, would that complicate the government as we know it? So we can we can look to history to see what are what are the cases. Like I said, the United States, we've been on these three different standards, and so we know something about the results of what would happen. So the uh, system that we had from 1913, or let's say 1933 up to 1971, we were on the uh, international gold exchange standard after the 19, uh, after the Bretton Woods system was established after World War II, we were on that until 71. Um, and so, you know, that, that's what he, what he's taking the name from Bretton Woods three, right. Is the previous Bretton Woods system that we were on and the United States did, um, honor, uh, this international gold standard where they would redeem U.S. dollars for gold. And once we went after the, off of that standard in 71, once the U.S. dollar was no longer linked to gold in any way, we did have a lot more inflation, mm. right? And so it was constraining the United, the U.S. Central Bank. And in fact, even the reason that we did go off of it in 71 is because of the inflation that we were having in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. So the Central Bank was creating inflation in the United States. That was affecting our exchange rate, which then made the gold a good deal for other countries to come and withdraw. Mm-hmm. And so basically the U.S. was being drained of our gold because mm-hmm. we were inflating the value of our currency, making it less valuable. And so it just wasn't sustainable that um, you can't create a lot of inflation and be on a gold standard of that type. Mm. Um, you're either going to have the gold standard constrain the central bank and not create inflation, or they're going to create inflation in some way and ruin the gold standard. So it just you know, kind of depends on how that structure is set up. But it's clearly the case that uh, we've had a lot more inflation since going off the gold standard. And so it certainly historically has provided a, a check on um, the central bank. Uh, if we look back prior to the central bank managed gold standard, the before the Fed was founded in 1913, we were on a gold standard for... 120 plus years since the founding of the United States, and even you know before that, um, that seems to have been relatively stable compared to what we've had under central banking. Mm-hmm. And so it's possible that even without the central bank, if we're if we're going to just let the market handle this in terms of creating gold, in terms of banks creating dollars, that seems like a better, more stable system, at least historically from the data that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, that kept the economy growing, but kept inflation low, meaning the monetary system was providing roughly the amount of money that the economy needed to grow. Um, and so, so it seems like that privatized system where banks and gold man- miners are having to respond to supply and demand, and the banks can't issue too much currency because people aren't demanding it, that's a more stable market-based system than what we've had with the the Federal Reserve managing the money supply. 
Mm-hmm. And do you think that when central banks are going to look back at what just happened, uh, especially 2021 and the inflation, do you think that's even in their minds that perhaps we need constraints? Like, what do you think is going on um, central bank reform-wise from the inside, not necessarily outsiders like us who have all these reform ideas? It seems like the central bankers are not very self-critical. <laughs> they seem to just always think like, whatever we did, that's the best possible thing. Mm. Uh, and it, so it's it's difficult for them to really respond and change very much because they always just think, oh, no, no, it's, it's not a problem. What we did was the best we could have done. Uh, and so this is really unusual because the Federal Reserve made some major mistakes in 2008. Well, I mean, I should say, Almost all of the major downturns in the United States, economic downturns, since we've had a central bank, have been caused by the central bank. Mm. Uh, so, for example, in the in the Great Depression, we had kind of a what would have been a regular recession, um, but instead of putting money into the economy to get us out of the recession, the Fed actually contracted the money supply, which made the recession deeper, turned mm. a regular recession into the Great Depression. Mm. That's the widely accepted view of most economists. Uh, I think in 2008, basically the same thing happened, that we went into a recession and the Fed thought that we were uh, going to bounce back quickly and they were actually afraid we were going to have too much inflation. And so they contracted the money supply or at least didn't expand it enough. um, And that made the problem worse. And that made what would have been a regular recession into what we call the Great Recession. Mm. It was much deeper than it would have otherwise been. Um, And part of that was their response to the financial crisis as well. Um, But it seems like this is largely driven by bad Fed policy. In the 1970s, the great inflation of the 1970s, clearly now in retrospect caused by Fed policy. A lot of economists, Milton Friedman, saying that at the time, um, or even predicting beforehand that the Mm. Fed policies were going to lead to a lot of inflation. And then now, again, we have a situation where post-COVID, Inflation is clearly being caused by bad Fed policy. And the Fed early on was saying, no, no, this is not our fault. This is all transitory. It's supply side. It has nothing to do with monetary policy. Now finally admitting, okay, this was largely our fault. You know, Jerome Powell flipping in 2021 saying, we're going to do everything that we can to get inflation down. It's now our top priority. Um, And hopefully, finally, that looks like it may be the case now uh, that inflation is, you know, stabilized or maybe even declining. And so, Finally, the Fed started mm-hmm. to do a good job after it made all these mistakes. But I think people at the Fed are still saying, oh, well, we did the best we could. Mm. You know, the data that we were looking at just said it was all supply side and that it wasn't caused by monetary policy and therefore it's not our fault. Mm. Uh, and then they'll get it right the next time. Right, sure, yeah. The the, But it's weird because, you know, they think they'll get it right the, the next time and yet they're not changing the way that they're doing business. Mm. Um, they're still using the same flawed models. They're still believing that they did nothing wrong. And it's also the case that they're, they're not thinking about real fundamental structural changes. You know, the thing about the idea that we would allow some money to compete or that we would go back to gold standards, that's not even on the table. They're Mm. not even thinking about that. They're not even thinking about how they could structurally change the way they make decisions at the Fed mm. to get a better decision-making process. They just think, we did the best that we could. Mm. And to me, that's, that's uh, my response is like, 
look, if that's the best you can do, <laughs> mm-hmm. we need something different. Mm-hmm. We need to fundamentally change this. If, if your decision process leads us to these bad outcomes, let's change that decision process. Or if the Fed as an institution leads to these bad outcomes, let's change the Federal Reserve as an institution. Or if central banking all leads to these outcomes in general, let's change the money system so that we're not relying on central banking. But no, they're not thinking about that at all. They're not even admitting um, that they were really made any mistakes. They're saying, look, we did the best we could. Mm. And on that idea of let's design a better monetary system, uh, I guess that that brings me to the final point, which is essentially trying to imagine what exactly that looks like. Because I think everyone, uh, especially people like me who were like born recently and um, maybe don't spend their time thinking about monetary policy. Does this money is money? Like the government made the money. I just spend the money. That's it, right? Um, but at the same time, we've seen the advent of things like cryptocurrency. I think is probably the most relevant one. So I was wondering, um, the emergence of cryptocurrency obviously has its roots in opposing central banking and trying to break away from it. I was wondering, do you see any sort of reliable alternative in that or do you think that's going to more so become like a speculative investment vehicle that i don't even know what exactly we're going to do with that you make money you lose money that's crypto um so do you see it as a viable alternative or just some sort of investment vehicle yeah i should say i'm a a huge fan of the cryptocurrency industry Mm -hmm. as a whole um i i think that there's a uh there's a lot going on in crypto besides just the currency aspect now we're going to see, I think, crypto be the foundation for a sort of whole new financial system that the the types of decentralized exchanges that we're building are just so much more valuable and transparent and safe than traditional financial exchanges. Uh, I think the ability for people to um, make exchanges and own their own uh, property rights and, and be able to uh, create like a social uh, systems where you're not giving all your information to Facebook, but you can decide what information you're going to share and what not. And there's just a huge amount of interesting applications that are happening in terms of, in cryptocurrency industry. But in terms of crypto as a currency, um, particularly, you know, Bitcoin or stable coins um, being widely used, I'm not sure how much effect that's going to have in the United States. So there are clearly some countries where Avoiding inflation is a big, big problem in a way that it's not in the United States. Mm-hmm. If you live in Venezuela or Brazil or somewhere where inflation is a big problem, that's a lot more important to you. The privacy benefits of cryptocurrency are very valuable in some countries where you have political dissidents that want to be able to escape the oppression of the dictator or the central government. Or you know, That's more uh, happening more in the United States than I would like, mm. right? <laughs> but but it's not a huge issue that I'm worried about every day. Um, we may get to that point, but I think you know in the United States because the central bank has done a reasonable job, people aren't looking to switch in mass to crypto right now. Um, but that doesn't mean it could be a good um, competitor. I think it would be great. You know, a lot of people think only in the very extremes here where. Should we end the Fed? Should we completely get rid of this and go to a gold standard or completely go to cryptocurrency? Um, I don't know that we have to do that. I think that kind of transition is very difficult because we, even though historically, I think banks, the, the historical record says banks did a very good job managing the money supply when we had a decentralized system, market-based system. Um, 
But they haven't done that in 100 years. And so switching back to it, I think, would be hard for them to do immediately. I think if we were to allow competition in currency, I think that's the first step, is that basically if we got rid of some basic things like the way that we tax crypto right now um, and allowed cryptocurrencies to compete as actual currencies, I think people would start using them a lot more. Mm. And some people might use gold. You know, there, there are some economists that study the gold standard that say, look, gold has always been the money that people go to. And if we allowed gold to be used as currency, people would privately just switch back to a gold standard. Maybe so. Mm. It's, it's potentially more stable than a currency like Bitcoin. Um, but I don't know, maybe people would find the electronic value of Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies to be a big advantage. And so, you know, I'd love to see that. I think if that did happen, it would potentially discipline the, the Federal Reserve a little bit more so that maybe mm. we would have a more stable U.S. dollar and be good for people that even don't want to use crypto that just want to use dollars. It might benefit them as well. And so I, I would love to see some kind of competition in currency. I, I think that's... Uh, the most likely and potentially in the short term, a uh, good outcome that we could have in the United States. Mm. So when you say discipline the Fed, what exactly would that force be if crypto, for example, were the um, competing uh, the competing entity? Was it, is it like, are they facing, like, if pe too many people switch to crypto, that's going to ruin the value of the US dollar or something like that? Is it's, Are the stakes really that high when yeah. you're making that competition? I, I mean, they're certainly afraid of that, or at least they say they're afraid of that. And part of the idea is that... that when you have the government in charge of the money supply, they think they can manage the money supply. They think they can use that to their advantage. And even, even if they think they're doing it for good reasons, right? They might plausibly believe, well, look, we're just going to be better at managing the economy than the decentralized gold standard. A lot of, a lot of economists aren't actually familiar with the history of the gold standard. Mm. You know, they think the gold standard was this terrible period of volatility and that it was bad for the economy. Historically, that's just not true looking at the evidence. I've written several papers about it, but you know, most economists like heard it from their professor who heard it from their professor. And mm -hmm. in the in the say the 1960s and 70s, the evidence that we had made it seem like that was true. But since then, in the 1980s and 90s, people did more thorough research about the gold standard and find out, like, actually, that period wasn't that bad. Mm. You know, even, even Christina Romer, who was the uh, director of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama, mm -hmm. has written several articles about the stability of the gold standard before the Federal Reserve. And so this is not a partisan issue uh, where it's only right-wingers or something like that. Honest economists that have looked at the evidence are willing to say, the gold standard was a pretty stable period. Um, and so switching to something like that might be good. But most economists don't believe that, especially those at the Fed. They think it would be terrible. The Fed is doing a great job. And so we want Americans to be using dollars. We don't want them to switch to this other alternative because we want the dollar to be dominant both domestically and also in international trade. Um, and so they might plausibly believe that mm. they're like doing us a favor by preventing these cryptocurrencies. Mm. But I think if people switch to that, it's because they think it's better, right? People that want to use cryptocurrencies or gold or something like that, they they would believe if they're using it, they believe it's going to be something better. Mm. And so I would love to see um, some kind of competition. If people did switch, then potentially the Fed would have to keep low inflation and have a more stable currency hmm. in order to prevent people from switching to other currencies. And so that's how competition, allowing crypto or gold or something to compete with the U.S. dollar, might discipline the Fed so that they had to create a more stable currency for the United States. And so competition could bet benefit all Americans, even those that didn't want to use gold or crypto. Hmm. 
And so in that end, you're basically saying that we cannot rely upon the Fed or people that manage the Fed to implement some meaningful structural reforms. But what we can we can force their hand by essentially opening up the market for money and allowing crypto, gold, whatever you want to compete alongside. And then the risk of not performing well would essentially be the demise of the U.S. dollar. Economists almost always believe that competition is better. The only reason, the only place they don't believe that is in money, mm-hmm. and I don't know why that is. <laughs> mm-hmm. But they've, they, you know, they would say monopolies are terrible. Oh, except for money, we'll give the Federal Reserve the monopoly on the money supply, mm-hmm. and that just seems very strange. I think yes, if we if we had competition in currency, if we allowed people to use whatever currency they wanted, um, then it would discipline the Fed because in order to keep the dollar popular, they would have to provide a better currency and they wouldn't be able to create the inflation that we're having today that erodes the value of the dollar, that harms Americans and hurts the people that are holding the dollar right now. Right now, they don't have an alternative. If they did, they could move to something more stable, gold or crypto or whatever. Um, That would be better for them and potentially require the Fed to have a more responsible monetary policy. Mm. Well, thank you so much for what seems like a very nuanced answer that can maybe shed a little bit of hope on what seems like a very perilous situation between two extreme ends, keeping fiat as it is, or completely into the wild, wild west of only Bitcoin or only gold. So I guess a concluding question really quickly is, given what you know about central banks as they are in the general conversation, and especially since we've heard talk of banning crypto, even though it provides that good incentive that you just talked about, what exactly do you see for the near-term future of monetary policy and just sound money in general? My expectation is that crypto will not be banned, but it will be regulated. So th- there are certain types of cryptocurrencies, particularly stable coins, that are actually beneficial for uh, the U.S. dollar and beneficial for the economy. So, so as I mentioned earlier, crypto is not just currency it's about all these other things that we're building on top of the cryptocurrency. And I really believe that we will see a development of a full kind of financial system that is built on top of cryptocurrency um, that is going to compete with the traditional financial system. And so that that's a huge area of growth that will benefit the economy, that will create tax revenue and things like that. And so you know we have an incentive to let that industry grow and thrive. And we'd like to be the world's leader in crypto and innovation uh, in all that technology. And so I think there's a big reason to to allow that to grow. But in specifically in terms of use as a currency, um, stable coins that are tied to the US dollar, some people see that as competing with the dollar, but I think it's actually an alternative that will allow the dollar to grow more. Mm. So most stable coins are tied to the US dollar, but also redeemable for US dollars. And so if these crypto companies or even decentralized organizations that aren't companies, if they're issuing dollars, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them are going to hold US dollars that they can then redeem for stable coins. And so it potentially will grow the use of U.S. dollars. And even into countries where people can't get access to U.S. dollars, they can still get access to electronic stable coins. And so this might actually increase dollar dominance and be a way for um, crypto to enhance the uh, influence of the dollar. And so that's a, that's a benefit. But I think we'll definitely see some, some regulation of this area. You know, a lot of, a lot of people in the crypto industry, they're, they're okay with what they think is going to be reasonable regulation. Mm-hmm. I think they don't understand that what <laughs> most politicians see as reasonable mm-hmm. is like more regulation than the banking system has today. Mm-hmm. You know, most, a lot of politicians think the banking system is unreasonably lightly regulated mm-hmm. and more bank regulations. Uh, and so I'm afraid that we're going to have a lot 
more regulation than um, would be good and a lot more than people in the crypto industry want to see. So I think it's going to be our responsibility to sort of push back against that. I think it's very likely we'll continue to have crypto, but the amount of regulation is, is still going to be in question. And I hope that we will have a light amount that continues to allow that uh, whole industry to develop and thrive. Mm. And I'm just imagining the creation of a crypto exchange agency like the SEC, but for crypto, just run by uh, crypto pros and something like that. <laughs> um, but Tom, thank you so much for providing what looks like an, a light at the end of the tunnel for a very perilous monetary situation. Um, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks a lot. 